I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. Welcome to The Oath. I'm Chuck Rosenberg, and I am honored to be your host for a series of fascinating conversations with people from the world of public service. Today, my guest is Pat Fitzgerald. The son of parents who immigrated to the United States from Ireland, Pat was a legendary federal prosecutor in Manhattan, where his work focused on organized crime and on terrorism. On the oath, Pat discusses efforts to dismantle the mafia and some of the earliest and most important work in the country— aimed at international terrorism and al-Qaeda. Pat and I talk about the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and the incredible investigative work of the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office that led to the 1998 indictment of Osama bin Laden. Pat also served as the United States Attorney in Chicago and explores that city's struggle with violent criminal gangs and with public corruption. Pat Fitzgerald, welcome to The Oath. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. I know you grew up in Brooklyn, family of four children, mom and dad. Tell me a little bit about them, if you don't mind. It was your classic immigrant family. So my father immigrated from Ireland at 31. He went to school up to the sixth grade and then worked on the farm in County Clare, Ireland until he was 31. And immigrated over to the U.S. and became a citizen eventually. What made him come over at 31? Looking for work, future, that he wouldn't have back in Ireland. And then on my mother's side, I'm actually both first and second generation, oddly. Uh, my grandfather came over and immigrated to Cleveland, married my grandmother in Cleveland. She came from Ireland as well. He fought in World War I for the fighting Irish, um, left for dead in the battlefield, but survived. And then remarkably, um, after the war, decided to return to Ireland. He and my grandmother were probably the only two passengers going the other way in 1921 or so. So he went back to Ireland where my mother was born. So she was actually a dual citizen growing up on a farm in Ireland. Similarly, she left at uh, 17. She only got to go to sixth grade as well. And uh, she came over here. And the one thing I think she was determined to do when she got here was to make sure her kids got an opportunity for an education. So what kind of work did your parents do? So uh, my, my dad worked in construction when he first came over. And then later on, after I was born, the jobs I knew my dad to have included being a, a warehouseman out in Queens. He was a security guard at the 1963 uh, World's Fair in Flushing. He worked as a doorman and uh, elevator operator. And so most of the time during my life before my dad retired, he was a doorman in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Did your siblings go to college? Yeah, every one of the kids went to at least one level of school beyond college. Your parents must have been extraordinarily proud. My dad never went to college. My mom went many, many years later and became a nurse after her kids, my sisters and I, all had gone to college. The way I would describe my father was he was as straightforward a person as you can imagine. He just went to work and made sure he got to work on time. If his shift started at 8, he would leave there to be at least an hour early, sometimes an hour and a half early. So he taught me if your dormant shift starts at 8, you ought to be dressed and ready to go by 7 in case the subway breaks down or something else. And always told me, you know, you go to a job, you're never late. Uh, show up an hour early so they know you're ready to work. 
and he viewed his role as making sure that he could do what he could to put bread on the table and take care of the family. And my mother, who had worked sometimes, but mostly took care of the kids, which was a, a pretty big job and a challenge at times, uh, was a firm believer in education. And she was to make sure that we went to school, did our best, went to the best high school we could and went to college. And so she was the driving force and my father would do whatever he understood was necessary to be done to make that all happen. And that's why we all went to school. I would describe one thing my mother did that I'm forever grateful, but was entirely mortified by. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was uh, looking to go to high school. And there's a great school I eventually went to, Regis High School, which I think is the best high school in the country. It was endowed by an anonymous millionaire in around 1914 or so, who wrote a check to a priest who said, send uh, young Catholic boys of limited means to this high school for free. And that school has never charged a penny of, of tuition in more than a century for anyone. And it is now being supported largely by alumni donations. When I took the test for that school, uh, I did not make the cut. Uh, the first 300 who would get in to be interviewed and 150 would be let in roughly. And I had done well at other schools. And so my mother first thought I had tanked the test because I wanted to go to another school. So that was probably my first opportunity as an advocate to defend myself. And then she said, you're gonna pick up the phone and ask them why you didn't get in. And I was a short, skinny eighth grader whose voice hadn't changed, incredibly shy. And so I picked up that phone off the wall, dialed that rotary phone with my mother standing there to make sure I did this, mortified that I'm gonna ask the uh, admissions director of a high school why I didn't get in. And so I found the deftest way to ask was to say, I was just sad that I didn't make the cut and I wonder if you could give me some guidance as to whether I messed up the English part of the test or the math part of the test, that I could frame it as a question rather than as a protest. The, the priest was on the other end of the phone, said, let me have your name. And then he quickly said, oh, there's been a terrible mistake. We sent you the wrong letter. And so come on in for an interview. Uh, my mother reminded me of that for many, many years afterward. And despite that being a mortifying experience, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I, I went to a wonderful school and met wonderful people and opportunities I don't think I would have otherwise had. From there, Amherst College and then Harvard Law School. Yes, and uh, my experience at Amherst was also very formative. I, I love the place and I, I went. It was a very different atmosphere than being from Regis. And did you go directly from Amherst to Harvard Law School? Yes, I, I worked a summer as a janitor in the New York City public schools in between, but graduated in May from Amherst and to, to Harvard in September. At what point did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Uh, I went to law school and I started having my doubts mid-law school uh, whether or not I wanted to be a lawyer. And I do remember interning at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston as part of my um, internship in, I think, my third year. And I remember walking around with assistant U.S. attorneys and watching the cases they worked on. I remember one involved the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, one involved people shipping guns to the IRA on a trawler uh, from Boston. And I remember literally running into a mobster in the hallway. He was coming out of a courtroom and AUSA had asked me for some legal research. And I basically uh, was running in to get him some cases that he needed. And this little old man bumped into me and I said, excuse me. And I went in the courtroom and the AUSA chuckled and said, do you realize who you just nearly knocked over? And I think it was a ranking mobster in the New England crime family. And I thought to myself, wow, what a great job. I will say this, when you grow up in Brooklyn and your parents are immigrants and you get to go to school, you think, well, I will go out and get the best paying job that I could. That's you know, success. And there I thought, you know, I'd love to do that job someday if I could. That just seems like really interesting and rewarding. That's when I decided I wanted to be a, a prosecutor after working at a firm for a couple of years. 
we were both blessed. I had wonderful parents. Uh, my dad, somehow, with no college education, worked incredibly hard so that my two sisters and I could go to college and come out without debt, which is what enabled me to become a prosecutor. Uh, and when I think of all the gifts that my uh, parents gave us, uh, that's right at the top. I luckily graduated with very little debt. Amherst had a very generous financial aid system, has an even more generous system now, and the ability to have people graduate from great schools with no debt is a wonderful gift to them, but it also enables people to dedicate themselves to some form of public service or public interest, which I think is a larger good and something that we need to pay attention to. Which U.S. attorney hired you? I was hired by Rudy Giuliani toward the end of his term. When was that? Late 1988. I started Labor Day 1988. How'd you like that job, Pat? I loved it. It was both very exciting, it was stressful, hardworking, uh, fun, and you felt like you were doing the right thing. And you got to work on cases and felt like your job was to do the right thing, which doesn't mean you're perfect in figuring out what the right thing is, but it's a very laudable goal. I heard that you tried your first case with a guy named Jim Comey. I did. Jim was a year senior to you, so he's first chair, your second chair. Yes. He's mentor, your mentee. Exactly. And Jim and I knew each other because my Regis High School classmate and Amherst College roommate, John Goggins, was Jim's law school roommate um, and, and friend. So that's how I came to know him before we were both in the office together. And it was a funny trial in the sense that uh, made some really boneheaded mistakes. One of the things was to cross-examine the uh, defendant when she took the stand about her tone of voice on tape because uh, it didn't at all sound like she was being pressured into anything. And the real issue was whether or not she had been entrapped by an informant and sort of talked into uh, engaging in a drug transaction because she you know, showed up to engage in a drug transaction. So I was getting up there to cross-examine her. Playing the tape was key. There's some strategy here, and I, don't sell me short here. So what I first had to do was have her oversell and say, you know, basically, like, someone put a gun to my head, otherwise I wouldn't have done the transaction. So I get up there, and I say, so, you weren't really willing to do this transaction, were you, until uh, so-and-so came along and talked you into it? And I think she, she basically said, well, I wouldn't say exactly put a gun to my head. I should have just sat down. But this is my first trial, and I'm thinking, this is cross-examination. It must go for half an hour, and then she breaks down and cries. So instead of taking a gift that I just told you everything you needed to know, I plowed on to try to make sure I could get her to say she was forced into doing it, even though she didn't. And then I had my aha moment to say, well, why don't we listen to your voice on tape and see how much you were pressured into it? I then hit the button on the tape recorder, and nothing happened. I then thought, well, maybe it's something wrong here. I checked all the plugs. Now I'm sweating bullets around a courtroom. It's my first trial. I can't get a darn tape recorder to, to make a noise. I later figured out that somehow in the process, someone had brushed against it, and one of the switches on the back, I don't know if it went from AC to DC or something like that, had brushed against it. So we had tested it, played it out. It all should work, and just sat there completely uh, baffled. I think we came up with some really weak excuse, like, I think there's been a power failure. And we're in a room that's as brightly lit as a 7-Eleven. So saying, I think there's been a power failure, as people could put sunglasses on, um, uh, didn't make a whole lot of sense. And then as it turned out, I then decided, well, okay, I'll feature this in my summation. I'll get up there and I'll say, just listen to this voice. So I did. I set up a compelling closing argument, building to a crescendo of saying, now just listen to this tape. 
Unfortunately, my crescendo was hitting about one minute before lunch, and the judge was insistent on going to lunch. And he said, well, stop there. We're breaking for lunch. They don't need to hear the tape. If they want it, they can ask for it. So my second dramatic moment uh, fizzled away. The jury went out to deliberate, and the first note said, uh, can we hear the tape? They listened to the tape, and they convicted. So I now, in retrospect, describe that as a brilliant strategy. Uh, fail it playing the tape mistime it before lunch and build the dramatic interest into what happened. I like your cover story. I'm not sure I credit it. Yeah, I wouldn't either. That was the first verdict I took, and it was February 14th of 1989. It was Valentine's Day. And that's when it came home to me that this person is now going to prison. And while the purpose of the trial was to prove that she was guilty, and she was in fact guilty, and it was proven. And then it comes home to you that uh, this is a sad event uh, at the end of what would be viewed as, quote, a successful trial. You know, I talked about this with Preet, and he also writes about it in his book, Doing Justice, that real prosecutors don't celebrate verdicts, they don't celebrate sentences. These are dramatic moments, they're tragic moments. Justice has been done, but there's nothing to celebrate. Certainly not in the courtroom, certainly not in front of the defendant or the defendant's family. Lots of the defendants uh, may be sympathetic, some less so. When they're Al-Qaeda defendants and they're trying to, to blow your country apart, uh, you lose a lot less sleep over them in particular. But the other hidden piece is for, for many defendants, they, they may well have earned the punishment they're getting, uh, but they have families. Uh, they have mothers and fathers, or they have children or spouses or partners. And this is, you know, incarceration is a necessary evil in both senses when it's appropriately imposed. Something you need to do at times, but not a good thing. You went on to do work involving the mafia in New York City. How did that come to be? And did you enjoy that work? I loved the work. It was fascinating. There was a trial that was being scheduled. The prior trial team was um, shifting off. The case had been around a while. And they came to me and said, would you be interested in working on this case? That was U.S. versus John Gambino. And who's John Gambino? Tell us about him. A captain in the uh, Gambino crime family. And he played a particular role because he was a bridge between the Italian mafia in Brooklyn, or La Cosa Nostra, and the Sicilian mafia in Sicily. And he was a bridge between the two and a channel for sending you know, heroin from Sicily to the United States, an important figure. His rank was captain in the Gambino crime family. Another co-defendant was Joe Gambino, his brother, who was a soldier and then other folks in the Gambino crime family. So I was delighted to take on a case like that. It was fascinating. I called Jim Comey, who was leaving the office at that time to move to Virginia, to say, who do you recommend I get as a trial partner? And to the uh, credit of uh, Patrice Comey, who overheard the conversation, she basically told Jim, you sounded real excited about that. Why don't you stay and do it? So the two of us did it together. We went around the country, visiting people in the witness protection program to sort of interview them, find out what they knew, and then figure out who of these would make appropriate witnesses, then got ready for trial, and then had a, a long trial. How long did it last? It was a six-month trial, uh, depending on who you ask. I would say it was a six-month hung jury. Jim Comey would say it was the longest successful bail-jumping conviction in history. Uh, we'd both be right. The jury hung on most counts. And what does that mean for a jury to hang? They can't decide unanimously whether to convict or quit. And so people uh, understand for someone to be convicted, it must be a unanimous jury, but also for someone to be acquitted, it must be a unanimous jury. A hung jury just means no resolution. Yes, they can be 11 to 1 to convict, that's not enough. They can be 11 to 1 to acquit, and that's not enough. 
And so we had the hung jury and the bulk of the counts. They had jumped a bail at one point during the process, John and Joe Gambino. So the jury convicted on that charge, and then we had to retry it. But when you say we, Jim Comey had left. Yes, I remind him of that often. So Jim, to his credit and Patricia's credit, had put family plans on hold for a year to try this case. It then hung. We had to retry it. Jim left for Virginia, and poor Rich Zabel volunteered to be my uh, psychologist as we went through this second trial again. Not just your psychologist, but also your co-counsel. Rich is a very talented lawyer. He's a very talented lawyer. And he had to endure my brooding over doing a retrial and a retry a case that didn't work out the first time. Very frustrating. By the way, do you know why it didn't resolve the first time? Do you know why it hung? There were some issues around a particular juror. I will leave it at that. That, that led to some concern about whether this was a up-and-up hung jury, and you respect when jurors disagree. Um, We've had our concerns, but nothing officially ever came of that. But we did do a second trial, and it was scaled down. Uh, Rich was terrific. He brought new ideas. Rich would say, so why did we do it this way? And I would sort of say, well, because that's the way we did it. And I try and remember why, and Rich would have a great idea and say, fine. You're the senior prosecutor. You're the mentor, and uh, Rich is a junior to you. Yes. But he's doing a lot of the trial, as I understand it. Oh, he was great. It was a great trial partner. So in the U.S. Attorney's Office, it pretty quickly becomes a team of equals in many cases. And he was at least an equal, if not driving the train in the case that we, we took to trial. With respect to the Gambino brothers, Joe and John, were they also convicted? Yes, they entered a guilty plea between the first and second trial. So there was a guilty plea. I think it was the first time that a member of the Gambino crime family admitted uh, to drug trafficking as part of a guilty plea, and they were not at the second trial. It was one defendant at the second trial. And what did you learn from prosecuting mob cases? What stuck out to you? What stuck out to me is how people can rationalize certain things that make no sense, but to them make rigid sense. That was particularly true when I dealt with the Sicilian uh, mafia witnesses straight from Sicily. And I remember once that there was a story that one of them who had been involved in many killings told. And they viewed themselves as men of honor, and they took that very seriously. That was a phrase they used. Yes, Juan Denore, men of honor. And when you were in the organization, there were all sorts of rules you followed, one of which was, you know, this was secret. You didn't talk about the, the existence of the organization, much less who was in it. And so there was a story one time where there were people they referred to as common delinquents, thieves, burglars, that sort of thing, which, in fact, this witness had been before he joined La Cosa Nostra. So there were reports that someone was burglaring one of the villages around Palermo in Sicily. So they gathered two young men who were probably teenagers, and they interrogated them and separated them, and they both confessed that they were doing uh, these uh, robberies and thefts. These common crimes. Common crimes. And I don't remember whether or not they had robbed someone who was a man of honor's house or broken some rules. But at the end of it, they strangled both of these folks, saying they were common delinquents and they broke the rules. And so there they are. They've just killed two young men. Then the story rolls around. You talk to the same witness. And they said there were some reports of some other robberies and burglaries in some area or other low-level crimes, relatively low-level. So they bring two young men and they separate them and interrogate them separately. And at the end of which, they become convinced that neither one of them was involved. Their stories made sense, and they realized they had the wrong guys. And they thereupon strangled them. 
And I said, well, wait a minute. The first time you had two common delinquents, they admitted to it, and you strangled them. Now you figure out these guys are not guilty. Why did you strangle them? He said, well, of course we had to strangle them because now we have revealed to them who we are and they cannot know uh, that we are in Cosa Nostra or know about Cosa Nostra. And then you say, well, it's a little odd, isn't it, that if you're going to interview these folks, if they're guilty, you'll kill them. And if they're innocent, you'll kill them. Then why bother uh, interviewing them if that's what's going to happen anyway? And watching the witness take great offense. Uh, that there was no appreciation for knowing what the truth was and feeling no sense of wrong. No irony there? No irony there. You know, putting aside the fact that you know, imposing a self-imposed death penalty for low-level crimes is bad enough on people who did it, and then to overlay that with imposing the death penalty on those who didn't, there was a sense of you do not understand. I will tell you, I made the comment before when he joined La Cosa Nostra. I remember preparing the witness weeks before trial and having debriefed him for a long time and familiar with the facts and events that had to be told, I hadn't been in the format of going to court. So I said to him, okay, and when did you join La Cosa Nostra? And then he just looked back at me and said, I never joined La Cosa Nostra. And my heart sank. And I tried it again and again and again. And he kept saying he never joined La Cosa Nostra. And my head is racing. I'm thinking, this guy is going south on me. Someone's got to him. He's panicked, but here he is, the key witness going on in three weeks to talk about how he became a member of La Cosa Nostra and all the things that he did. And by going south, you mean that he was being untruthful? Untruthful. And wondering what in the world is going on. And then finally, he just lectures me and says, have you learned nothing over the last year? You do not join La Cosa Nostra as if it is some sort of club or golf course and you just apply for a membership. He was offended. He was offended. You become, you are combined into La Cosa Nostra because you do not know La Cosa Nostra exists. They bring them somewhere and they tell you that you're combined in. And anyone who would use the word join doesn't appreciate what La Cosa Nostra is about. And so then I quickly made a note to myself, in front of the jury, I will ask, when did you become a member of La Cosa Nostra instead of uh, when did you join? And that just shows me there was a rigor of mindset there that I, I realize is necessary for people to cling to in order to be able to do some of the horrific things that they did, but they took it very seriously. Well, again, the word irony comes to mind. Uh, folks who uh, constantly break the law living by a rigid set of rules. Yes, and that was very much the case, particularly with the Sicilian La Cosa Nostra. Uh, the point that they could get pretty offended if you ask the wrong question as they're describing some horrible things they did. You like that work, right? I did. I found it fascinating. I thought it was important. And when you think that what many of the sort of ethnic organized crimes do, groups do, preying upon their own fellow immigrants and taking advantage of the system and killing people or importing massive amount of drugs, hard to feel that that's not important work. And then to be part of a great team, uh, work with great people, agents, investigators. I've worked with Jim on that. I worked with Rich Abel. I got to work with the legendary Ken McCabe and other folks and FBI agents. We've mentioned uh, Ken McCabe's name before on this podcast. Uh, talk a little bit about him because every time I hear the name, and I never had the privilege of meeting him, I just hear wonderful things about the man. He had a wonderful innate sense. He was a great guy. Former New York City police detective. Yes, and then came to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office on a case and kept him there. Had an encyclopedic knowledge of the mob. If you were driving around 
a little Italy with him. He'd, uh, he'd look over and if he saw someone outside one of those social clubs, he'd say, there's so-and-so. Locked him up a couple of years back. That was one of his favorite expressions because he had locked up most of them, but he knew where people were. Uh, he knew like an encyclopedic knowledge of things and great judge of character. And he would look and you pick a juror and he'd say, you know, I have concerns about that one juror and he'd be right but just a wonderfully hardworking, knowledgeable, low ego guy. And you'd see him sometimes meet some of the folks who became witnesses. And there was a mutual respect there that they would look at him and say, he's the real deal. The mobsters who he locked up respected him. It was universal respect from the mobsters, or at least most of them that I ever heard of, and law enforcement and prosecutors. And he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy who passed away uh, way too early in life but left a real mark on those who work with him. There was other work you did there, Pat, that we have to talk about. It's some of the most interesting and important work that any federal prosecutor has ever done in this country, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. You and others, such as Ken Karras, also a wonderful prosecutor, now a federal judge in New York, were among the first to ever work on terrorism and on al-Qaeda and on Osama bin Laden in particular. How did that start? So sadly, it started out with the World Trade Center bombing, February 26, 1993. The office then began to work on that prosecution. Uh, there were some of my close friends working on it, Henry DePippo and Gil Childers and Mike Garcia and, and uh, Lev Dassin. And while that was going on, I was actually in court doing the Gambino trial with, with Jim Comey. Well, that was the middle of our six-month trial it was January to June. So it happened during our trial. And then the retrial was, I think, the next January. When the retrial was over, I took a long vacation in Australia and New Zealand, um, went bungee jumping and all sorts of crazy stuff with my friend Dave Kelly, who was also in the office. And I had been promoted to be narcotics chief. And I came back from vacation and my boss, Paul Sheckman, said, we'd like you to join the trial team for the blind shake case. So I think I had a three-month career as the chief of narcotics in the Southern District of New York, six of, weeks of which I was on vacation. And then I switched on to the trial team with Andy McCarthy and Rob Kazami, and others were involved. And Andy's wife, Alexandra Rabay, was a key part of the team in terms of legal analysis and brief writing. And so we worked on the Blind Sheikh case, which was a nine-month trial. Who's the Blind Sheikh? So Sheikh Omar Abdulrahman was a leader of what was called the Islamic Group from Egypt. And he came to Brooklyn and preached. And uh, he was shown to be behind a group that was involved in a conspiracy that included the World Trade Center bombing. And our trial was from January of 95 until October 1st, 1995. And we overlapped the O.J. Simpson trial. And the O.J. Simpson trial was packed and everyone paid attention. And there are many, many seats available in the courtroom for the Blind Shake trial that got a lot less attention. And I frankly think a lot of people thought the charges were a bit exaggerated. It talked about a global jihad effort around the world that was led by people who had an extremist view of, of Islam and that was uh, opposed to the West and was violent. And I think people didn't take that all that seriously at the time. But it was a fascinating trial and a great experience to work with uh, Andy and Rob. In 1993, a rented van was detonated in a sub-basement of the World Trade Center and six people were killed. This was the first attempt by Al-Qaeda to bring down the World Trade Center. And you're right, not a lot of people were paying attention. But it couldn't just be because of the OJ trial. I think there's a unwillingness to believe 
that this jihad conspiracy could be that real and that broad. It also is clear to me, looking back on it as part of that investigation, that the day that that extremist form of violence came to American shores wasn't February 93. It was back in 89 and 90. There have been prior attacks that uh, were not paid attention to. There was a gay bar bombing in Greenwich Village in April 1990. And it was written off, I believe, by the police as anti-gay extremism, which it was. But it wasn't just your random person who had bias against uh, gay people. Who was responsible for it? It was uh, El Saeed Nosser, who was also behind the World Trade Center bombing plot and others. There were attempts to uh, set off bombs against uh, Dan Quayle and Gene Kirkpatrick that were inept. But it happened in hotels while there were labor strikes, so that was being dismissed. There were, we learned later, efforts to stalk Hosni Mubarak uh, by El Saeed Nosser. President of Egypt. The president of Egypt. There were tantalizing hints of acts of violence beforehand. And then there was a remarkable story of the assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahani in the middle of Manhattan. And that story is incredible. Meir Kahani is in the middle of a hotel room. And Meir Kahani was what I would say would be a right-wing pro-Israeli person who wanted all the Palestinians removed from the state of Israel. So a controversial figure. He's giving a speech in midtown Manhattan. When? November 5th, 1990. And during the speech, a man walks up in the middle of the hotel, walks up to the speaker, pulls out a 357 Magnum, and shoots him dead in front of the crowd. The shooter then runs to the back of the room. Irving Franklin, at 76, doesn't have a gun, but bravely goes to tackle the gunman. The gunman shoots him in the thigh. He runs out the back of the hotel, is running out into midtown traffic, and jumps into a cab. A whole bunch of people attending Kahani's speech, unarmed, surround the taxi. He jumps out of the taxi, and then there's a postal police officer closing up the post office across the street with a gun and a bulletproof vest, and he turns around, and there's a shootout between the shooter and the postal police officer, who's shot but hit in the vest, and a man lies on the ground, bleeding, with 357 inches from his fingers and gets arrested. That was El Saeed Nosser, who would later play a role in the World Trade Center bombing. And he's taken a trial in the state. He is acquitted of killing Rabbi Kahani, but convicted of possessing the gun that did so. It wasn't a federal prosecution, it was a state prosecution. Exactly. I never quite figured out what happened at that trial, but because the federal government can retry cases under certain circumstances, it's not a violation of the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution, we took that murder and brought it into the case that we brought against the blind sheikh and others as part of an overarching conspiracy retried it and convicted um, no Sarah of that. So to me, that's clear proof that back in November 1990, extremist jihad had come to America. There's an interesting story, Pat, uh, based on the forensic work of the FBI in the aftermath of the 93 World Trade Center bombing, where they found a car part that led them to the bombers. Can you talk about that? Sure. There's some great forensic science that can figure out which car was the host of the bomb. It's sort of like, think about an egg in an egg carton, and someone put a firecracker in one of the eggs. The one that had the firecracker is going to have little pieces distributed in all directions. So that sounds easy. When people do the hard work, the forensic folks trace it back. They found the VIN number, the vehicle identification number, of the truck that contained the bomb. And it was a van that was rented from uh, some car rental service. And when they pulled the, the record up, they saw that it had been rented by a guy named Mohammed Salome. 
Um, if I back up to tie this into an uh, a, a earlier story, please. Uh, when El Sayed Nosser killed Rabbi Meir Kahani in the middle of a ballroom, it turns out that this fellow Muhammad Salome was there with him, sitting in the audience. Later spotted in a video. So there had been talk that, in fact, Nosir was going to bomb big buildings. There had been an effort to, to appraise it, and frankly, the person who was reporting it was viewed as being uh, unreliable. And so uh, the FBI closed its investigation by trying to scare Nosir, Salome, and others. Six months later, they realized Salome is the one who rented the van that blew up the World Trade Center, the guy who was in the back of the room with Nosir, and they realized they'd have to arrest him. They send an undercover agent um, when, he, when Salome comes back to get the deposit on his van returned. Imagine the brains behind that. You use a, a van to blow up the World Trade Center, and you're going back to collect the deposit. There was an almost comical exchange where the undercover agent's negotiating whether he should pay him $200, and uh, Salome's outraged. And then the agent says, okay, instead of 100 what if I offer you 75 So the FBI agent uh, negotiates down. Down, and he takes it. And then he's arrested. And then meanwhile, this tied into a fellow named uh, uh, Elga Brownie, who was Nocera's cousin. And they went to uh, find him in Brooklyn. There was a great detective since passed away, Tom Corrigan, a dear friend. As much as I had, uh, loved and admired Kenny McCabe, equally strong feelings about Tom Corrigan, who was a great American, and we miss him. Uh, and he went and was part of the arrest team for Ibrahim Elga Brownie, who they thought might have uh, had plastic explosives in his jacket when they felt something hard in his jacket. It turned out it was five fake passports for Nasir to go to Nicaragua and escape, and he ended up being prosecuted. But um, this whole VIN episode was a quick forensic unraveling that took him back into the conspiracy of folks that ended up being charged with the bombing and the plots around it. And then after the conviction of the blind shake, one of the things that Mary Jo White, I will forever give credit for. Then the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, your boss. My boss. She understood that th there might be more to this jihad stuff than people were giving credit for. So with no resources coming from Washington, she stood up an organized crime terrorism unit to say, let's be more proactive. And ironically, people can forget how it all happened. It wasn't focused on Osama bin Laden in particular. It was focused on Islamic extremism or terrorism generally. And we started that unit and it was a fascinating way to work and eventually we, we learned appropriately that there were other people at the uh, CIA who were looking at Islamic extremists, and they were focused on a guy named Osama bin Laden. And we had a lot of legal difficulties to work through, but we got to the point where we could partner with both the FBI to work on a criminal case against bin Laden, but also to appropriately be read into intelligence that the CIA had about him. And my first reactions were to thinking that Osama bin Laden was a little bit like, where's Waldo? Every time something bad happened around the world, people were like, it's bin Laden. And how could this guy actually exist and be that involved all around the world? And maybe he's a billionaire or a very wealthy man. Maybe he was loose with his finances, but what sort of role did he actually play? And so we ended up working on the bin Laden case from 95 forward, but with an evolving sense of bin Laden, not with a sense from day one that he's the kingpin over a terrorist organization. One of the more interesting things I think people don't appreciate about Al-Qaeda is how sophisticated and how corporate it was. What do you mean by corporate, Pat? They had uh, HR folks. They had communications folks. They had salaries. They had policies. So if you worked for Al-Qaeda, you were paid a fixed salary. You would get 
medical benefits of some sort. You would get like two weeks vacation. At one point when they had a financial crisis within Al-Qaeda, they actually had a downsizing where they told people you can retire from Al-Qaeda and we'll give you X amount of money and two tickets to return to your home country. Unless your home country has the death penalty imposed on you already, then you can go somewhere else. But there was like a buyout plan uh, when they wanted to downsize. And you worked in their direction. You could be a bottle washer in a field camp one day. You could be the communications person a month later. And then they could be sending you to do a military action as they would view it in Afghanistan at the same time. So when you call it corporate, you're not kidding. Not kidding at all. And this fellow, uh, we called him Junior was his nickname. Junior uh, came to learn as sort of the paymaster in the Sudan that there was um, racial discrimination going on in Al-Qaeda, that the Sudanese who were looked down upon, were paid less than the Egyptians or the Iraqis. So he decided to engage in self-help. He was Sudanese. He started taking money from Al-Qaeda uh, to make up for what he thought was the unfair salary he was uh, paid. Junior's real name was uh, Jamal al-Fadl. Jamal al-Fadl. And then it became known to bin Laden that Junior has been embezzling from him. So he called him into a room and said, pay the money back. And then Junior decided he wouldn't pay the money back. And he absconded. I won't tell you where he went but he made contact with American officials overseas. And then we had the opportunity to meet him overseas and debrief him. It was an interesting moment because his first reaction was, I read President Clinton has a program to pay rewards to people who turn in terrorists. He thought he might get a bounty for coming forward. And we had to explain that that program didn't apply to terrorists themselves. And that as a member of Al Qaeda, we were interested in working out a plea deal with him that he would come to America, he would plead guilty to a crime he would get consideration for helping us, and eventually we convinced him to do so. Was it difficult to bring him on board? It took work. It took time of listening to him with some great agents and a team, and you mentioned Ken Karras before, and we worked through with him in getting him to the point where he understood it was in his interest, personally in his family's interest and safety, to get him to the United States, to get him in the Witness Protection Program, eventually to get his family out of the Sudan, which we did, and get them into the witness protection program. And frankly, the strangest thing about it is I've always had a theory that very few people who become government witnesses have any sort of conversion. They might want to tell the jury, I used to rob banks for a living, and suddenly I decided it was the wrong thing and I became a witness. Usually when they have that epiphany, it's shortly after the handcuffs go on them outside a bank where they got caught in the middle of a bank robbery. And I've always been reluctant to believe anyone who had a conversion. An epiphany of convenience. Epiphany of convenience. There was a point with him in the development of him as a witness where we were going to put him in a very difficult situation, having to testify against someone very close to him, and wanted to just brace him for that. And at one point, he cut us off and said, look, you guys are beating around the bush. You need to lock someone up. And we said, we understand that, but understand that when we do, you'll be a witness against that person who's very close to you. And he said, I know that. That's what you have me here as a witness for. And while it'll break my heart to do so, I know that we need to stop bin Laden before he kills more American men, women, and children. And this was before 9-11. Hi, everyone. It's Joy Reid, host of AM Joy on MSNBC. Did you know you can listen to AM Joy and all your favorite MSNBC shows as podcasts? You can catch up on The Beat with Ari Melber, The Rachel Maddow Show, The 11th Hour with Brian Williams, and more anytime on the go. 
Search for your favorite MSNBC shows wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe for free. Thanks for listening. In 1998, there were bombings at two U.S. embassies in Africa, one in Kenya and one in Tanzania. Describe what happened and why those events are so important in the evolution of our fight against Al-Qaeda. I remember it vividly. We had indicted bin Laden under seal in June of 1998 under Attorney General Janet Reno. We, the Southern District. Southern District of New York, under Mary Jo White's leadership and working as a team and working with people at Maine Justice. Was that based in part on uh, Junior's cooperation? Yes. And we worked closely with the FBI. I thought there was a good working relationship with the intelligence agencies and the CIA in particular. And we got access to lots of information and pulled the trigger on indictment in June 1998, which was under seal. It was a strange feeling because that was the goal for about two years to build that indictment and working like a dog. And then it's sort of like, well, will we ever see him in handcuffs? And we've achieved this. What does it mean? And then August 7th rolls around and you wake up to a news report that you know, minutes apart, there's been a bombing in Kenya and a bombing in Tanzania. And right away, it said to me, that has to be Al-Qaeda. And ironically, we had been investigating a cell in Nairobi, Kenya, before the bombing. Uh, we've been investigating in New York. An odd fact that I can share, because it became public later, we had put one of bin Laden's lieutenants in the grand jury in New York in the summer of 1997, a person named El Haj. He had operated out of a house in Nairobi, Kenya. The U.S. government, with the Kenyan government, raided that house in 1997. One of our case agents, Dan Coleman, attended that raid, and we had said we need an FBI agent on the ground just in case we find some key evidence we may want to use. You want the FBI agent in the chain of custody for that evidence. Exactly. And so he was. And then Wadi al-Hajj, an American citizen living in Kenya, then left to go to the U.S., We subpoenaed him off an airplane at Kennedy Airport to go to the grand jury in the Southern District of New York. And in the meantime, what we knew then and can say now was that we had recovered a computer in that search, that it had documents from Al-Qaeda on it, including the fact that a person named Haroon, whose name will be important later, had um, removed files from Wadi's house. Wadi Al-Hajj was the guy who was in the grand jury. In essence, they had figured out that the Americans and other intelligence agencies knew that bin Laden's cell was there in Nairobi, Kenya. So we put Wadi al-Hajj in the grand jury in Manhattan, and we're asking him about this fellow named Haroon, and where are these files? And the grand jury, I think, is looking at me like, what is this guy doing asking this man about files in Nairobi, Kenya, because we're having him draw a map to the house where the files are stored. I think Wadi al-Hajj is looking at me, what is this crazy person doing drawing a map uh, to Nairobi, Kenya? So he draws the map. And as we leave the grand jury, I realize we're in a pickle because we're not so sure we can take this map, which is grand jury information, and share it more broadly in the government than the FBI. There are rules that restrict the dissemination of grand jury information. Those have been amended over time, but back then, they're fairly strict. Yes. And so if we wanted to say, why don't we give it to non-law enforcement, it wasn't clear we could. So Dan Coleman is standing outside the grand jury. Um, the average person wouldn't know this, but FBI agents are not allowed in the grand jury other than when they're testifying. So we bring Wadi al-Hajj, who's an al-Qaeda member, out and say, Mr. al-Hajj, uh, Agent Coleman wasn't allowed in there. Do you mind redrawing that map? So he redraws the map, 
which we can now use. It wasn't created in or for the grand jury. It's created outside the grand jury for Dan Coleman. Exactly. It, literally outside the grand jury. One of the things the Patriot Act did was to clarify that situation because we had to rely on the professional courtesy of an Al-Qaeda member to both waive the Fifth Amendment and testify in the grand jury and then do it again after. What did Dan Coleman do with the map? You're on to me. So we go looking. The U.S. government goes to look and cannot find the files. So it's frustrating. But we knew this fellow Haroon was the one who had hid the files. Fast forward a year. It's August 1998. We fly over to Africa. We're working with people on the ground. And one of the uh, FBI agents working on the case says that they found someone suspicious, a guy who was later convicted of the bombing. And he said his story's not making sense. And he bought new clothes after the bombing as if to hide he'd been involved in the bombing. And he's telling me the story at night that says he was in a bank with a friend and he was in the bank next door to the embassy when the bomb blew up, but it doesn't make sense. And he says he was with his friend named Haroon. And my jaw dropped. And I'm thinking, that's the same Haroon. We would later miss Haroon by a day, getting to the location where he had fled. So it was a big miss, but we knew this guy would be one of the bombers if he was with Haroon. It later turns out that we went on a search of a particular charity that was involved in the bombing. And lo and behold, we found these files, the files that had been hidden the year before. We found them after the bombing. And we later brought Wadi al Hajj back to the grand jury and showed him all these documents, and he lied about them, and he ended up being charged with perjury, then charged with conspiracy and part of this big trial. Why did he help and then lie? The interesting thing that's very different between al-Qaeda people and the mob, the mob never answers a question. If you walk up to any mobster and say, excuse me, sir, do you have the time? They don't answer or they take the fifth just for the sport of it. And no one can ever say anything nice to a person uh, if you're in the mob that's in law enforcement. So you always get the fifth. I found that with Al-Qaeda witnesses, an overwhelming majority will talk. Number one, they like to debate with you. Two, they try to convince you their position. I never made uh, Al-Hajj into a cooperating witness. As I said once, we spent hours sitting on a floor eating Afghani food in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. I tried to convert him into a witness, and he tried to convert me to Islam, and we had equal success. Meaning none? None. But they do talk, and I also thought he thought he could just tell enough truth and fool us. And so part of the issue is he made all sorts of lies about the documents, but he ended up being convinced. Haroon ended up being a, a key player in the bombings. So after that, we then put together a case against the various bombers involved in very interesting ways, and a lot of it was unorthodox, flying by the seat of our pants, uh, frankly, because we weren't used to being in a situation overseas. And then we went to trial. There's one fascinating story that shows how things can be counterintuitive. So there was a bomb factory in Kenya. It was a house, but uh, it was rented, and it was used to assemble the bomb. So and eventually, the FBI could trace it back and figure out that's where the bomb was built. It was leased by one of two brothers. They were Ashraf and Sikander, but the Juma brothers. They're the ones who leased the bomb factory. And so they move up on the suspect list. And we realized that those two were the brothers-in-law of a late military commander of Al-Qaeda. So before this time, around 1996, uh, bin Laden was the head of Al-Qaeda. The current head of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, was one of two military commanders. So there were two number two ranks. And this third guy, whose name was Abu Abeda, was the other military commander. These guys were brothers-in-law to the military commander of Al-Qaeda. Third bad fact for them is someone swabbed their clothes and there were explosives. Like the thing you occasionally see at the airport where they uh, swab your hand. Exactly. So you're related to a military commander in Al-Qaeda 
you rent the house for the bomb factory, you're seen around it and you test positive for explosives and someone's seen ripping up papers. So everyone's hot to trot to lock these guys up. But as we talked to them, we realized they were dupes. And an amazing story, they were living uh, in Kenya. So the reason why they rented the bomb factory is this guy Haroon knew them. And it's easier for a Kenyan to rent a house than a foreigner. And you get a cheaper rate. So they had him, uh, one of the brothers, go rent the place. So that's understandable. They had them clean the place at some point, And they paid them by giving them blankets and sheets they wouldn't need anymore. So these guys are sleeping in their homes with blankets that were used by people to make a bomb. So all the bomb traces that were on the bomb makers go to the blankets to them. Therefore, the residue is on them. Exactly. And then the question becomes, okay, but their brothers-in-law, the military commander of Al-Qaeda, you know, how could they not know? Or are they dupes? And one of the things that was found in that computer I mentioned before that was seized in Kenya in 1997 was a report about how the military commander died. He was taking a ferry ride on a lake in Tanzania, hugely overcrowded boat. If there's supposed to be 200 people on the boat, there were 400. It capsized in the lake, hundreds of people died. One of the brothers was in a cabin with the military commander of Al-Qaeda. The boat is upside down. As the water is flowing in, the brother climbs up and opens the door and is climbing into a hallway um, so he can swim out. And he reaches down to the military commander who just says, Inshallah, it's God's will. He's a heavy set guy, he couldn't make it out, he drowns. This guy swims down hallways and stairs and gets out from under the boat and clings to a bunch of floating bananas until he's saved. Al-Qaeda is trying to figure out why did their military commander die in a capsized boat and the guy in the cabin with him survived. Could this have been a, a hit? So they send Haroon, that same guy who keeps popping up, the guy who hid the files, the guy who it turns out led the bombing in Nairobi. He was in the lead truck and didn't kill himself, but he led the bomb trucks there. Haroon went and interrogated him and wrote a report to Al-Qaeda that basically cleared him and said, we asked him all sorts of questions that he doesn't really know what his brother-in-law is. And unlike the mob story you told earlier, if you're cleared by Al-Qaeda, they don't automatically kill you. So they, they left him alone. And so here we had that report that vindicated that this guy was a dupe. And so when we put him on the stand to explain the story, we first showed him that report. He must have been astonished. Astonished. And here he is reading about an interrogation by Al-Qaeda of him for how he escaped a sinking boat in Lake Tanganyika on a witness stand in Manhattan. Did Junior testify at that trial? He did. He was the first witness. The one amazing thing that happened is no one really knew his identity until shortly before the trial. The defense had guessed because of news reports that a number of members of Al-Qaeda had defected, and he probably had to another country. That's what the news stories were. So they expected a different person as a witness. Now, when you make someone your first witness, it's usually somebody very important to the case who can set the scene. That was the point here. He was very important. Junior, as we called him, was born in the Sudan, moved to Brooklyn in the late 80s, and hung around the very areas where the Blind Sheikh and others were organizing to go fight in Afghanistan. He then went to Afghanistan. He then joined Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda moved to the Sudan in the early 90s. He was pivotal in that move because he was Sudanese-based. And then Al-Qaeda moved back later on, obviously, in 1996 to Afghanistan. And at some point around that time, he had broken from Al-Qaeda and was with us. So he was a stage setter to walk through and explain to a jury in 1998, pre-9-11, what Al-Qaeda was, how it worked. He had been 
eyeball to eyeball with bin Laden many, many times. And so he's a critical witness. To set the backdrop, you have to understand there was a very, very tragic episode that happened, two tragic episodes before the trial, which made us on edge about security. So at one point early on in pretrial proceedings, uh, Al Haj, this person who was a U.S. citizen whose computer we had seized in Kenya and who testified in the grand jury a couple of times, wasn't a large man and he had a physical handicap. One of his arms was much, much smaller than the other, I think from birth. And he was not what you would think of as a physical threat. But during a pretrial proceeding, he leaped out of his chair and tried to kill the judge in the courtroom. And obviously that was very, very concerning. Uh, then there was a second episode where there was a high security wing in the jail that they were held in called the MCC, specially purpose built for high security risk detainees. And during a tragic episode, a person by the name of Officer Pepe, very kind corrections officer, treated these guys with lots of respect, was basically assaulted grievously. Pepe almost died. Almost died, very close to died because they were behind a high security wall and they had fashioned a shank, a comb, a hard plastic comb, and they jumped him. A shank is a prison-made weapon, but they can be lethal. Yes. They stabbed him in the eye into his brain uh, with his shank, and it was awful. And the rescue team had to get through the high security doors, and uh, he survived, but he was grievously hurt, and it was tragic. And so you had those episodes of trying to kill a judge in the courtroom, trying to kill Officer Pepe to take over the wing to demand the release of the blind shake. And then another person, when being treated in the hospital for the assault on Officer Pepe, had secreted a weapon to try to attack their defense counsel. So by the time the court trial rolls around, we have these guys shackled to the table at the feet with bunting over the table so the jurors wouldn't see the shackles. And then all the pens that were on the defense table uh, were these safety pens. That if you tried to stab someone in the eye, you could do very little damage. They weren't your standard big pens. And so you've got this packed courtroom with guys shackled to the table, with bunting around it, with safety pins. And Junior is truthful. Truthful. He's the first Al-Qaeda member to break with Al-Qaeda, and now he's on the witness stand. During the East Africa embassy bombing trial, I understand, Pat, that the State Department brought in victim families from Kenya and from uh, Tanzania uh, to watch and to listen. Uh, there's an interesting story at the end of the trial involving those victim families. Would you share that with us? Sure. I will say this. When the Victim Witness Act first kicked in, as federal prosecutors, you often didn't have direct victims in some of your crimes. If people are drug trafficking, there is harm to the community, but you did murder cases less. So unlike a state prosecutor who would see a victim of a robbery or a murder, we had a lot less contact. We then decided, after scanning the code book, that we wanted to make sure that this was a prosecution of both sets of victims the majority of which were Kenyan victims, we found a statute that made someone who kills someone else in the course of a bombing a separate charge. So we put out a separate charge for every victim in alphabetical order without regard to nationality. There were some later charges that were focused on killing just Americans. Because some Americans were killed in those bombings. They were. But we wanted the Kenyans to appreciate that they were victims too, and this was about vindicating their loss. And then the State Department would fly over groups of Kenyan victims who were injured to be witnesses, as well as family members of those who lost their lives to observe the trial on a rotating basis throughout this trial, which went seven months. And we had Fridays off, 
And so there's a regular practice on Thursday afternoon when we didn't have anything immediately do, we would meet with those victims in a room just to talk to them, explain what was going on. It was fascinating. The Kenyan people are wonderful people and how they handled the circumstance was just amazing. And so I think the American prosecutors got more out of those meetings than they did, but they were very often very emotional and very touching. And then the day the verdict came back, I'll never forget. We walk into the room and I can't describe it, but there's this tribal call. I can only describe it, it sounds like a banshee type noise. It's like a whoop. I will not embarrass myself by trying to recreate and fail, but it was this celebration noise. They just felt vindicated. And just to hear those people feel appreciated and to have them walk up and give you one plate. It was a plate that was made in their village. I put it prominently in my office when I moved to Chicago. That meant the world to them. It means it meant the world to us. Uh, your connection uh, to Kenya did not end with the East Africa embassy bombing trial. I mentioned earlier I went to Regis High School and one day I picked up the Regis magazine and read about the school in Nairobi called St. Aloysius Gonzaga. And it was founded by a Jesuit priest. And the Jesuits are the, the same priests who taught me at Regis. It's in Nairobi. It's in a slum called Kibera, which is incredibly poor. And there are students there that go to school from eighth to 12th grade at St. Aloysius Gonzaga because the school was founded by a Jesuit priest who was being running out of the Chicago province of the Jesuits. And so when I read about it, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is interesting. There's a connection here to uh, Kenya, uh, which I've always been fascinated by. It's a connection to education, which I greatly appreciate all the gifts I've been given educationally wise, but particularly by the Jesuits. And it's got this connection, ironically, to an office in Chicago that was a mile from my house. And so I've gotten involved with that group. Uh, there's a board in, in, in the U.S. now, the School of Hope Foundation, that helps support that school in Nairobi and teaching students who were, uh, initially, it was uh, restricted to people who were AIDS orphans, whose parents had died of AIDS. And now, because the AIDS crisis is still very real but less lethal, and because there are other social ills, it's still trying to serve a disadvantaged population. So it's a wonderful school, and I've become involved with the board. I haven't had a chance to go back there, but when my kids are a little older, I want to go there and bring them there and both have them see what a different part of the world lives like and then also see the, the city again and just sort of reacquaint myself with it. So I hope to do that soon. Pat, you're a son of Brooklyn. You went to... Um high school at Regis. You left for seven years for college and law school, but then you came back to New York and were a storied, legendary, iconic federal prosecutor. And those aren't just my words, but the words of your colleagues in describing you. How in the world do you end up in Chicago? That's a great question. I got a phone call one night during the trial, the embassy bombing trial. It was before 9-11. It was Senator Peter Fitzgerald. No relation. He's a United States senator from Illinois. Yes. And he was calling to see whether I'd be interested in applying to be the U.S. attorney in Chicago. I know that he reached out to Jim Comey. I know Jim Comey provided my name. I think he reached out to Louis Free, who helpfully provided my name. But I didn't know that either had done so at the time he called. He also reached out to Mary Jo White, I'm told. I believe so, too. He didn't just reach out. He asked them the same question. He asked who is the best federal prosecutor in the United States. And all three told Senator Fitzgerald it was this guy named Patrick Fitzgerald, you. I 
Don't know if that's true or not, but um, I'll tell my kids that. When he called me and asked me to apply, I almost hung up on him. I assumed it was one of my college roommates pulling a prank. When I realized he might actually be uh, a senator from Illinois, uh, that I really didn't have time to focus on this right now. I was focused on the trial and sort of politely declined and just sort of hung up the phone thinking, God, that was weird. Well, there's a reason to think it's weird. I mean, nobody gets a call from a sitting United States senator that you've never heard of from another state asking you to come and be the U.S. attorney there. He called to ask me to apply, and then I think he called back maybe a month or so later. And then at that point, I was talking to Ken Karras, who's from Chicago, and I said, what the heck? And I went down to meet with him, and then I met with him further, and it was all kept very hush-hush. And then one day he told me I was the choice. How long were you the U.S. attorney in Chicago? For 11 years. Did you like the work? I loved it. And I love the people. I love the people I work with in southern New York. I love the work I did there. And I loved uh, every bit as much the people in Chicago. They were different. And I love the work I did there. I missed a little bit that when you're a U.S. attorney, you're not an AUSA with your hands on as much. I missed that. But um, it was a wonderful experience and treasure those days. Maybe a slight exaggeration, Pat, but I used to describe my time as an AUSA as doing everything and seeing nothing, and my time as the U.S. attorney as seeing everything and doing nothing. It reminded me of my days as a janitor. Um, uh, there was a sign over my boss's desk, work. I could sit and watch it all day. And so as U.S. attorney, it was great work. I sat and watched it all day. How big was the office in Chicago? When I left, I think it was about 160 attorneys and about 300 people. And so the focus necessarily changed. You had been working mob cases and terrorism cases as an AUSA in Manhattan. Uh, what was the um, work of the Chicago office like? It was different. They were focused on gangs in particular, gangs, drugs, and guns, uh, which is a focus in New York, but the gangs were different. And it became clear to me right away. The difference in New York was you went after a drug ring and it may have dominated five different street corners in the Bronx. And you arrest those folks and they go away. And three years later, people don't really talk about them. In Chicago, gangs were entrenched, well-organized and intergenerational. So there was a gang before my time that got dismantled that they once found a assignment sheet for drug workers. I think there were 9,600 of them on the list. They had a board of directors for their gang, one in, for inside prison, one for outside prison. The gangs often had people who were third generation. Their grandfather and father before them were in the gang. So I remember hearing from someone in DC who said, um, look, you guys have to stop focusing on these gangs and start focusing on organized criminal enterprises that are involved in drugs. I was like, that's who our gangs are. Find me uh, an organized criminal enterprise that has the you know, firepower of some of the Chicago gangs. One example was there was a time Shortly after 9-11, and I transitioned to Chicago right around 9-11, I was in New York on 9-10, closing my Bin Laden files and flew out the morning of 9-11 uh, to Chicago, and I was in the air when the, the, the horrible things happened. Shortly thereafter, we heard that there was a housing project in Chicago where they had probable cause to search half the apartments for, for drug reasons. They had a fence around the apartment building they had people on the roof with these gangs with night vision glasses and um, rifles with scopes. And an undercover officer had walked into the premises and they had felt his um, bulletproof vest and shot at him.
and that this was a no-go zone where law enforcement couldn't go. And thought to myself, we're going into Tora Bora to show the world that you know we'll go wherever we have to go to keep Americans safe. But there are people, families, living in these buildings in Chicago where it's not safe for law enforcement to go. What about these folks? And a team of 300 law enforcement agents you know, raided the place and took down this gang, which had also pirated a Christian radio station. So the problem of gangs, drugs, and guns in Chicago is more acute, and it's why, sadly, Chicago's per capita murder rate has always been significantly higher than in New York. And so that was an interesting experience to learn a lot from people who are really, really working hard. And I think there was really good cooperation among state, federal, local law enforcement in Chicago. So you described that gangs were very different in Chicago. Why were they very different in Chicago? That's a very good question we struggle with. I think part of it is Chicago strikes me as being geographically more segregated than New York. I'm not saying that New York was a melting pot always and, and still is, but it seems like there is more geographical boundaries in Chicago. And I think there's greater access to guns. Ironically, at least when I was U.S. attorney, the big source states for guns for Chicago were Illinois, Indiana, and Mississippi. There was a pipeline of guns there. And I think the intergenerational nature of gangs made them a stronger force, and it made it more violent. I know that the murder rate in New York has declined precipitously, though the murder rate in Chicago, and just as important, the number of shootings in Chicago remains uh, incredibly high. Is that something you focused on as U.S. attorney? It wasn't just me. It was a whole large number of people in the office. I use that as a shorthand because I was a U.S. attorney, too. It's the men and women in the office. It's the folks in law enforcement, the local and state partners. It's not you, Pat. Yeah. And that teamwork and beyond law enforcement, which I'll talk about in a moment, was very focused on that. I remember the year I came in, there had been 666 homicides the year before. I remember working with a colleague, Matt Crowell, was great to work with and said, how are we going to focus on this? I remember the numbers crept down from the lower 600s. And then I think we got to very low 600. And the next year we were thinking, can we break into the fives? We broke into the fours. And so there was a point at which uh, the homicide rate, uh, which had been, uh, I think, as high as 900 in the 90s, dropped to the 600s and then dropped into the 400s. And that's great news when you would look out at the, the law enforcement officers who are making that happen and saying, isn't it great that maybe there are 200 people less lost their lives than before? But how in the world do we live in a city where we're losing 400 people a year like that? And how is it that the per capita rate is north of New York? The numbers have ticked up and they've gone back down. And so part of the problem we had is that there were so many people trying to fix the problem that when you applied five different solutions to a particular neighborhood and the numbers dropped, you were happy the numbers dropped, but you couldn't quite establish which particular intervention was the cause of that. I would say that one of the most important things that I think people don't appreciate till today is the issue of re-entering felons. If people commit crimes and they go to prison and they come out, if our attitude is that's it for them, they should never be hired again, we are just ensuring that that person and their family is condemned to a life that isn't very good and there's a greater likelihood of recidivism. I talked about this with Sally Yates on this podcast, we all realize in law enforcement that the overwhelming majority of people who go to prison come back out. Yep. And that we want them to work, we want them to get an education, we want them to pay taxes, we want them to raise families, and we want them to contribute. 
we need to find a way to do that. And so one of the great things that the office was doing in partnership was working at law enforcement to take parolees as they left prison, giving them a little bit of facts of life of saying, look, if you go out there and start doing what you were doing before, we're watching. But if you're here to sort of turn your life around, here's someone from the community who's offering jobs. And literally some guy would stand up and say, I work in this industry, it's manufacturing. Here's the address. If you're interested, show up you know, tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. The law enforcement lectures don't work um, as much. People want, you may want to reinforce the message. We would have uh, a felon who had been in prison and gotten out or who was shot and paralyzed in a wheelchair would talk. That would resonate with folks. And the real thing is to convince employers that this is not just a responsible thing to do society-wise, but you'll get good employees. If people think that everyone coming out of prison is going to be violent, let me tell you something. If they want to go back and be a gangbanger, the door is open. No one is going to get up at 5 in the morning to take a bus one hour across town to go into a minimum wage job unless they want to work it. You know, there's no value in it. The people who have self-selected and said, this life is not for me, I want to turn it around, will show up. And they'll work hard. And there were organizations that helped organize them. So I think one of our big issues as a society is to, to deal with this re-entering felon population and to treat them like citizens and to realize that uh, we need to get engaged in, in making them a productive part of the workforce. And that's really important. Is it fair to say that there was a culture of public corruption in Chicago? And what did your office uh, do to address it? Yes, there was a culture of public corruption. I felt uncomfortable when I first got to Chicago saying that, like, who's this kid? He's from, from New York. He's been here three weeks and now he's going to you know, talk about it. So I thought I would hesitate to say it at first. And then I, I finally said, what the heck? Let's just be straight about it. There is a culture of corruption. And part of the problem is that low expectations are set. There's an issue that may be addressed quite soon by the new mayor, Lori Lightfoot, uh, who worked in the office when I was there, about aldermanic prerogative. It simply meant the aldermen could block anything in their ward that they didn't like. That leads to a license for abuse, and that was an issue that went on. But a big part of it was a culture of tolerating it. So, for example, a number of corruption cases are brought. After they're brought and after the person is convicted, you run into someone at a party who says, Thank God you convicted so-and-so. That person has been preying on people for so many years. I never want to talk to you about it before. I didn't want to be a witness, but we all knew. And by the way, what took you guys so long? And I used to say, you want to throttle them. Like, okay, so you're out there knowing this person is shaking people down. Maybe you're being shaken down, and maybe you're making the payments. And you're wondering, where's the government when you don't tell them? And then when it's finally done, you're sort of saying it should have been done sooner. And I used to use the, the example of Vermont, and maybe I'm you know, glamorizing Vermont, but I think if you went in many towns in Vermont and said, I want a permit to put a barn up, said, fine, you know, pay me 200 bucks and I'll expedite your permit, people would go screaming down the street and that person in Vermont would be out of a job in a nanosecond. That's not the culture in Vermont. And I think in Chicago, they haven't seen enough pushback to corruption that people roll their eyes too often and put up with it and sort of say, if I have to pay 200 bucks to expedite the permit, that's what I got to do. If I have to hire the connected guy to get this done, that's what I have to do. And we haven't turned the corner yet in Chicago. We've made real progress. I know there are things going on there now that are, you know, cases that are being brought. And I think we just got to get to the point where people in Chicago say unacceptable. You know, and that's where the solution is going to be. It's going to be with a, with a population, not with law enforcement. Law enforcement has to do its part 
and that's to show people that it'll be acted upon, but people need to speak up and fight back a lot more. Any idea how many assistant U.S. attorneys you hired while you were the U.S. attorney? I think it was close to 150. Because that was the thing I liked most about being U.S. attorney, frankly. I, I heard someone before I became U.S. attorney say, you won't remember the cases, you remember the people you hired. I thought that sounded very nice. I didn't know if that would resonate. I totally feel that way. And you look around sometimes and you hear about one of the people you hired that's still in the office and some of the things they're doing, or has left the office and done something great, they've gone on the bench or they've done something else. And even though it was probably a no-brainer to hire them, and there were probably you know, 12 people before you who put this person in front of you, and it was yours not to screw up that decision, you still take great pride and say, oh, I hired that person and look how great they're doing. When I talk to friends and colleagues of yours, they tell me you were the best they ever worked with. I wanted to let our listeners know that, and I wanted to thank you uh, for sharing those stories and coming on the oath today. Well, you're way too kind. I'm, I'm glad you picked some people with bad judgment to talk to, so I appreciate it. Well, they may have bad judgment, but they were uniform in their praise. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. I would like to thank my guest today, Pat Fitzgerald. Pat mentioned in this episode his ongoing connection to the wonderful people of Kenya through his efforts on behalf of the School of Hope Foundation. If you'd like to get involved with the School of Hope or just learn more about it, please visit its website at schoolofhopekenya.org. That's schoolofhopekenya.org. You can also find the link to the School of Hope Foundation in our show notes. Also, A special thanks to the University of Rhode Island for allowing us to record today's conversation with Pat Fitzgerald in its state-of-the-art broadcast center at the Harrington School of Communication and Media. Next week on The Oath, we end our first season where we started with the second half of my conversation with the former director of the FBI, Jim Comey. This time, Jim discusses his experience working in Richmond, Virginia, his service to three presidential administrations, and a deeply personal story of loss. That's next week on The Oath. If you like what we are doing, please let us know. If you have thoughtful criticisms, feedback, or questions, please let us know that, too. Email us at theoathpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, theoathpodcast at gmail.com. And though I cannot personally respond to every email, please know that I read every email. So far, We have received more than 1,400 of your emails. And by the way, your feedback and suggestions have been tremendously helpful to us. Thank you for that. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is to tell other people how much you've enjoyed this podcast. And if there's someone in your life who has never listened to a podcast before, please take a moment to teach them how to access it. So many of you have written to us and told us that this is the first podcast you've ever listened to. And so to those first-time listeners, I am so glad that you've joined us for these conversations. Thank you for taking the time to find us. And oh, by the way, while you're at it, give us a five-star rating on your favorite app. We have surpassed 6,000 ratings on Apple Podcasts. When we started this project, I never imagined that so many good people would join us for these conversations. I am so very grateful for your support. The Oath is a production of NBC News and of MSNBC. This podcast was produced by Fanny Cohen with the amazing team of Fanny Cohen, Nick Bannon, and Rob Hebert. 
Lauren Chadwick and Laurel Heineman provided production support. Our senior producer is Barbara Rabb, and Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. This is The Oath with Chuck Rosenberg. Thank you so very much for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Joy Reid, host of AM Joy on MSNBC. Did you know you can listen to AM Joy and all your favorite MSNBC shows as podcasts? You can catch up on The Beat with Ari Melber, The Rachel Maddow Show, The 11th Hour with Brian Williams, and more anytime on the go. Search for your favorite MSNBC shows wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe for free. Thanks for listening.